0: morning. <clears throat> nice to see all of you this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. We're going to be in verses 17 uh, and jumping all over the place. So we'll start in verse 17 though. So this is part two of our three-part sermon series on Psalm 119. Last week we saw that the psalmist was rejoicing in the high life. Oh, I just went off and we need some Bibles. So if you are here and you don't have a Bible, uh, please raise your hand high and we would love to give you a Bible. All right. Sorry about that. So once again, we're in part two of our three-part sermon series on Psalm 119. Um, We were seeing that the scriptures are the high life. The author of this psalm sees the blessed life as living the Christian life, following the scriptures and what it says. And last week, you may have felt very convicted, and s- some of you may have even thought, I've been a Christian for 20 years, and my life rarely feels like that. And I think the author also views that as idealistic because our next portion that we're going to look at primarily deals with laments and prayers because he is suffering in this life and trying to see the Bible as beautiful as it really is. This psalm helps us realize that the Christian life is not always the high life on the clouds of joy, but it is often the hostile life. And that's the title of the sermon this morning, Living the Hostile Life. This psalm should provide a comfort because we are living in a battle of worldviews and kingdoms all around us, but we're also living with a battle internally a battle against our own sin so let's read psalm 119 17 through 18 and then we will look to god in his word this is psalm 119 verse 17 deal bountifully with your servant that i may live and keep your word open my eyes that i may behold wondrous things out of your law let's pray Lord, we thank you that Psalm 119 is written down. We thank you that we can spend weeks and weeks meditating on it and still find more glorious truths. God, I ask that we would be convicted of our sin and comforted in your gospel. Help us to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ and let the Holy Spirit be in and through every word of this sermon. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So to review last week, the literary structure of this psalm comes in a chiastic motion. Essentially, the beginning of the psalm matches the end of the psalm and works towards the center in a type of mirrored symmetry. We saw point A last week, point D, and A prime as well. And this week, we're going to focus on B and B prime, which focuses on laments and petitions and trusting in god in these times of difficulty so that is our literary structure of this psalm i also need to give credit where credit is due i didn't come up with this um the reason i hesitated on mentioning their names is they don't actually believe the bible is entirely true but uh frank hosfeld and eric zenger had a great literary analysis but you know you gotta pick your battles sometimes um, so this point of our chiastic structure has four acoustic pairs that form our outline. And this brings us to our main point. Bible-saturated people disregard enemies by God's word, fight sin through God's word, are amazed by God's word, and pray using God's word. So instead of focusing on his trials and his enemies, Bible-saturated people focus on God's word, We also have a battle within ourselves, sin, and this battle is a battle over our affections, our desire to sin, or our desires for Jesus Christ. We will also see that Bible-saturated people look to God's word and find awe, wonder, and beauty. Lastly, we will see that our prayers are to be so saturated in the scriptures that we're actually quoting the Bible as we pray and praying God's attributes throughout. So with that, let's look at our first main point, Bible-saturated people disregard enemies by God's word. We'll start reading in verse 17 and go down to verse 32. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth, hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life, according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me, according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness, and I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So by way of review, we looked at verses 1 through 16 last week, and we summarized that by saying Bible-saturated people find blessing by God's word. We divided this into four subsections looking at blessing from living God's word, desiring to keep God's word, wisdom for keeping God's word, and rejoicing in keeping God's word. And at this point, we see several thematic connections between these two points, but also a clear transition where we are introduced to characters in a type of impressionistic narrative That are attacking and fighting against this man that has a high view of scripture. Then that tension comes in verse 21. So 17 through 20 seem to be a transition where there's still this idealized, high life, beautiful picture of the Bible. But there are others in this world that do not view the Bible in this way. And so what are we to do as Christians? On top of that, verses 17 through 32 seem to be this lament section in our lament petition trust in our chiastic structure. Now, there are several literary points of contact between verses 17 through 24 and 25 through 32. Like we saw last week, all of these are two-section thematic units. So first we see the word meditate in verse 23 when he says, your servant will meditate on your statutes. And then jumping to verse Um, 27 make me understand and I will meditate on your wondrous works The author describes his soul in verse 20 when he says my soul is consumed He says the same thing in verse 25 my soul clings to the dust and then in verse 28 my soul melts away for sorrow In verse 18, he says open my eyes that I may see and then in verse 26 and 27 He asks god to teach him and make him understand the bible in verse twenty one we see the wicked are wandering from god 's commandments, but by way of contrast, we are to run towards god 's commandments in verse thirty two Finally, um, we see that he takes he asks God in verse twenty two to take away his scorn and to put away false ways in verse twenty nine and then he asks for life in verse seventeen and twenty five so those are all the connections that I saw between these two. Uh, acrostics. Now, moving to verses 17 through 20, this passage primarily focuses on a prayer to know God's word. Once again, this is a transitional unit, and it looks back to the themes we saw before, but they bear repeating here. He says that he wants to keep God's word, just like he mentioned in verses 8 and 9. He wants to behold wondrous things out of the Bible, and he longs to keep God's rules. All of these are reiterated in verses 1 through 16. On top of these repeated themes, there's a bit of wisdom for how we are to keep God's word, and they occur in verses 17 through 18. He says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word, and then he says, open my eyes. We, up until this point, we have seen we are supposed to learn God's rules in verse 7, memorize the scriptures in verse 11 and more, and in verse 12 it says, to teach me your statutes, But God can teach us all he wants. But if we are blind, we don't want to see it. So this prayer is that God might open our eyes to see the beauty of the Bible. And I think that prayer is important for us today. God does not just need to teach us. He needs to open our eyes to see the beauty of the Bible. And as a Christian in the New Covenant community, this comes through the Holy Spirit. In John 14, the main goal of the Holy Spirit... The main mission of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of the teachings of Jesus. And so when we pray and when we read the scriptures, we are to ask God that the Holy Spirit would teach us and open our eyes to see the beauty of the Bible. John Piper, in his book, Reading the Bible Supernaturally, states of this text, All of us know what it is like to read without seeing wondrous things. We have stared at at the most glorious things without seeing them as glorious we have seen marvels without marveling and this is why we must continue to weave the thread of god dependent prayer into our reading saying show me your glory i wonder if we pray that in our own bible reading With that, we can move now to verses 21 through 24, where this focuses on comfort in God's word despite persecution. So here's the new thematic development that's coming in here. There are people in this world that don't view the Bible the way we should and the way this author does. They do not see scriptures as the high life described in verses 1 through 16. So what are we to do with this, And I think this text reveals that there should be a righteous indignation against wickedness in the life of a Christian. Why? Because God is supremely valuable. If God is supremely valuable, then those that do not value him are committing high treason against the king and creator of the universe. For example, if I were to take a key... And go to a junkyard and key a car, nobody would bat an eye. But if I went to a Tesla dealership and keyed a Tesla, it'd be a much different story. How much more is God infinitely valuable? Amen. Let's look at verse 22. And it says, take away from me scorn and contempt. Meaning, take away those who fight against me. This is part of the reason why I chose disregard. To me, it implies two things. First, it's not ignoring. The psalmist acknowledges the wickedness and the evil in the world, but he chooses to focus on something different. He chooses to focus on God, his word, and his salvation. He focuses on what God has done in his life and the promises of God in the scriptures. And then we see in verses 23 through 24 what I think are an allusion to Psalm 1 and 2, where you have princes plotting against the Messiah and the blessed man meditating on the scriptures. And we'll reinforce these messianic undertones in the next sermon, but for now it's sufficient to say that we are to meditate on the Bible despite princes plotting against our Savior, Jesus Christ. With that, let's move to verses 25 through 28, which is a prayer for life. In persecution. So he saw a prayer to know God's word, then comfort in God's word, now a prayer for life in persecution. He asked God to give him life according to his word, to strengthen him according to his word in verse 25 and 28. And while he acknowledges that the curse of Genesis 319 is upon him, clinging to dust... And that he melts away for sorrow. He wants to meditate more on God's wondrous works. And I think his meditation is specifically on God's salvific work in Israel, the Exodus. I think Israel as a whole saw God's salvation in the Exodus as a picture of how God was going to save them throughout their lives. But if we read the prophets, they look forward to a day where there is going to be a new and greater exodus that is so awesome that it eclipses the first exodus. And that happened in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, where he exiled, we were exiled in our sin, and he brought us out of our sin into himself, and by faith we enter into this new covenant community. And the great thing about this new exodus is a change of heart. The problem wasn't being in Babylon. You can get people out of Babylon, but you can't get Babylon out of the people. They still were struggling with their sin and idolatry because they wanted it. But in the new covenant in Christ, you and I, through the Holy Spirit, have new affections, new desires to love the Bible and to love Jesus above all things. You and I are a new creation in Jesus Christ, and these are the wondrous works that we are to meditate on. All of God's promises are yes, and all of us say amen. Now we can look to verses 29 through 32, which primarily work through a commitment to keep God's word. We pray, prayed to know God's word, found comfort in God's word, prayed for life, and now we are committing to keep God's word. in verses 29 through 32. He says that he wants God to teach him his word, that God would actively put away falsehood out of his life. And we see four commitments in verses 30 through 32. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies and I will run in the way of your commandments. In other words, he is committing to live out the scriptures. He is not just setting his heart on it, but wanting to do it. He disregards the struggles of his life because he wholeheartedly wants to focus on the treasures we can find in the scriptures. So spend more time rehearsing the God's word that we memorized in verse 11 and that we are reciting in verse 13, rather than meditating on the problems around us. More than that, the Christian life focuses on the problems within I am my own greatest enemy. And that brings us to our next point. Bible-saturated people fight sin through God's word. Let's read now verses 33 through 48. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes." So let's look now at the connections we have between verses 33 and 48. If we look at verse 33, we see a commitment to keep God's law to the end, and verse 44, a commitment to keep God's law continually. Verse 38 and 41 talk about God confirming his promise and saving because of his promise. Verse 35 and 47 are about delighting in God's commandments and there's one that doesn't appear in our English translations, but uh, in verse 39 and 42, we have the one, the, the reproach of the wicked and the one who taunts me or reproacher is kind of how the Hebrew would literally, literally, literally translate that. So looking at verses 33 through 36, we have a prayer for God to teach his word. This transitions us from the laments we saw earlier to now petitions or prayers of request that God might do something. And specifically, these requests are that he might know the Bible, that he might be able to take sin out of his life. Look at what he says at the beginning of every verse in this section. Teach me, give me understanding, lead me in the path of your commandments and incline my heart to your testimonies. At the beginning of every verse, his focus in prayer is that he might know more scripture. And notice the motivation at the end of all of those verses. He says, I will keep it, that I may keep your law and observe it. I delight in it and and incline my heart not to selfish gain. This is a commitment to fight against sin. And it is intimately related to verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So let's not miss the major point here. The psalmist prays to learn the Bible from the mouth of God, yes. But he also prays to live the Bible through the power of God. It only comes through God's power that we are able to fight against sin. And it is a battle over our affections. And we need to find the superior pleasure in Jesus Christ and him resurrected. The psalmist prays to learn the Bible from the mouth of God and prays to live the Bible through the power of God. Moving to verses 37 through 40, we have a prayer for life. And at the beginning in verse 37, we have give me life in your ways. And at the end in verse 40, give me life. So we have a type of inclusio here. And this prayer to me is two sides of the same coin. First, we are called to turn. Look with me at verse 37 and 39. He says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. And then in verse 39, turn away the reproach that I dread. This means we are to turn away from our sin and that is the reproach he dreads. He dreads living a life that is not honoring and glorifying to Jesus and instead of the reproach that he would bear for not living the Christian life, he wants to turn away from that. But this is not a generic turning away from something. We have to have a direction that we're turning toward and that comes in verse 38 and 40. Confirm to your servant your promise Behold, I long for your precepts. In other words, killing sin comes from turning your eyes away from your sin and turning your eyes to Jesus, to beholding Christ and Him crucified, buried and risen, ascended and seated at the right hand of God. Because it says, Open my eyes in verse 17 and 18, we see sin for what it is evil and wicked. And that motivates us to want to turn away and turn our eyes to Jesus. So Jesus even says in Matthew 6, if you want to look there in your own time, but in Matthew 6, through 23, Jesus says, if your eyes are bad, then your body becomes dark. So if I, our eyes are wandering and coveting and lusting and looking at and desiring sin, our bodies will become darkened. So our our, our our eyes wandering to something they shouldn't be focusing on, to a website we shouldn't be on, to a family that has the white picket fence and we're, we're coveting their life, their car, their job, their status, whatever it may be, our eyes wander and we need to focus them on Jesus Christ. So in other words, If your eyes are wandering, your heart is darkening. If your eyes are lusting, your heart is rotting. If your eyes are coveting, then your heart is corroding. Are your eyes more fixed on the scriptures and the person that it exalts or on the lusts of your flesh? Looking now to verses 41 through 44, we have a prayer for covenant salvation. And within this prayer, we see a high level of trust, which makes me conclude we have now moved from lament to petition to trust in this section of the psalter. The reason I say covenant salvation is because of the phrase steadfast love in verse 41. It's translating loving kindness in other translations. But every time you see that word, it is the Hebrew word hesed. And that always refers to a covenant relationship in the Bible. And if you see faithfulness or emmet, those are two sides of this covenant relationship that God is showing here. Notice the motivation for prayer in verse 42. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me. And our prayers, just like we saw last week, are typically about our own circumstances and difficulties. That's not wrong. But our prayers fundamentally should be focused on the glory of God in this world. In the the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, he says, God, make your name great. That's his first prayer, and it should be ours too. We should pray like Habakkuk 2.14 when he says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That should be our goal for praying. And every time we get on our knees in prayer, asking God, it should be focused on His glory and the exaltation of His Son, Jesus Christ. So, is that your motivation for praying? Are you more focused on seeing God's glory or seeing your own life get easier? Is that the motivation? For your praying. Jumping now to verse 45. We have a commitment to proclaim God's word. So we start with praying for God to teach us. Then we pray for life in our circumstances. For God's salvation. But it doesn't stop there. We have to proclaim God's word. To praise God for his word. And that's what verses 45 through 48 are about. Committing to proclaiming the beauty of the Bible. Verse 45 says, I shall walk in a high place. In other words, the psalmist knows that he will be delivered from the narrow confines of the distresses of the wicked to walk in a wide place, like a giant open field, and it is paradise. But the reason is because he sought God's precepts. And in this section, he states twice that he loves God's commandments in verse 47 and 48, which I love. And even in the midst of the hostile life against ourselves and those around us, we can find comfort in the glorious heights of the majesty of God's word. So first we saw that Bible-saturated people disregard enemies by God's word, Second, we saw that Bible-saturated people fight sin through God's word. And now we're jumping down to the next B point of our chiastric structure. And this brings us to our next main point. Bible-saturated people are amazed by God's word. Turn with me to verse 129. This is Psalm 119, verse 129. He says, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true trouble and anguish have found me out but your testimonies are my delight your testimonies are righteous forever give me understanding that i may live so there are two points of contact between these sections of our psalm first we have another inclusio in verse 129 he says your testimonies are wonderful and in verse 144 at the end your testimonies are righteous And then we have two complaints about those who do not keep God's law. In 136, he says, my eyes shed streams of tears. And then in verse 139, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Now, this chiastic structure that we saw before reveals that verses 17 through 48 and 129 through 160 are connected. And there are Lots of connections between these two sections, but they're specifically centered around three things, persecutors, afflictions, and cries for help. And I won't give you all the verses because that would take probably 20 minutes. Looking at verses 129 through 132 now, we see an infatuation with God's word. And I chose that word very intentionally. Look at the different ways he describes the Bible. They are wonderful in verse 129. They give light in verse 130. He longs and pants for them in verse 131. And he says that he loves God's name in verse 132. He's infatuated with the Bible. And just like we saw in the last sermon, the main application point for this psalm is do you love the Bible the way this author does? Notice he has three verses proclaiming the beauty of the Bible and only one verse longing for God's salvation. And I think we have an allusion on top of that to the ironic blessing in number 625. If you look with me at verse 135, it says, make your face shine upon your servant. Make your face shine upon your servant. In other words, we have a clear example of stating a promise of God in the midst of difficult circumstances. And this is finished later, but the point here is, we have a literal example of quoting the promises of God over yourself in times of trial. Do not forget the importance of memorized scripture in verse 11 and declaring those promises in verse 13. And I encourage you this week, try and memorize one promise of God's word. Just One. And then we move to verses 133 through 136, which moves to a prayer for redemption. So after praying God's promises over himself, he prays for a redemption. And this is where we move for praise for God's word to serious cries of lament and help. Look at what he says. He sheds streams of tears. He cries out, redeem me. He calls on God to not let iniquity get dominion over him. And all of these wrap up in a prayer for redemption and salvation. And we've seen prayers like this before, and this one is no different. The reason he wants redemption, look in verse 134, that I may keep your precepts. Look in verse 135, teach me your statutes. The reason he wants prayer for salvation is so he might live the Bible better. And is that our prayer? Oftentimes I feel in my own life that I just want to get my problems out of my life so I can be comfortable. But the Christian life is not designed to be comfortable. It's designed to be convicting. Where we are changing more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. So we have these uh, ironic blessings that we've seen once again in verse 135. And the reason he cites it And verse 136 is for those in the world not keeping God's law. He wants the world to know the beauty of the Bible. And this man is more Bible centered than I can even imagine. All of his problems in his life seem to center around his desire to keep God's word, so much so that he wants to encourage others to follow it. And are you characterized as this type of person? I think if I met somebody like this, I would make fun of him (laughs) because his his life is so centered around the scriptures, but we are designed to see this as our idealized goal. Are you so convicted by the world around you that you are actually in tears because of people ignoring the Bible? That's not me, but we all need to want to be like this person. In verses 137 through 140, we see now a zeal for God's word. So tracking with our impressionistic narrative, we have a clear passion for the Bible in verse 129 through 132. Then we have a realization that there are those in the world who hate the Bible in verse 133 through 136. And now, based on this information, he is even more zealous about the Bible. And this zeal is a passion for the supremacy of God and his ways. A passion for the supremacy of God and God's ways. This zeal is explicit in verse 139, my zeal consumes me, but only a zealous person could say things that he says in this text. Only a zealous person will proclaim, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Only a zealous person with a view of God's word, like his, can say, righteous are you and right are your rules. Only a zealous person would proclaim, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. And only then, when we catch this vision for the beauty of the Bible, can we say, my zeal consumes me. I want to boldly exhort our church now to be zealous for the scriptures. Be zealous for the kingdom of God. Be zealous for the supremacy of Christ and seeing and savoring the glory of Jesus. But this is not an excuse to be a Bible-thumping jerk. It's an encouragement to be a Bible-loving servant. A Bible-loving servant. So let us be characterized as a church, zealous for the Bible and loving God and his word. Lastly, verses 141 through 144, primarily focus on remembering God's word in trial. And this portion seems to be in a ABAB format. Look at verse 141 and 143 with me. I am small and despised. Verse 131, trouble, excuse me, 143. Trouble and anxious have found me. And anguish have found me out, both reveal a difficult condition, however, both move forward toward a theme that I've repeated probably three or four times in this sermon alone. I do not forget your precepts in verse one forty two in verse one forty four Your commandments are my delight. He remembers the promises of God and god's word in the midst of trials, but he doesn't only remember it it's not like it comes in his brain. And he says, "Cool, thanks bye he says. That it is supreme. It is truthful in his own life. Verse 142 and 144 both proclaim the greatness of the Bible. Moving forward with that, your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Your testimonies are righteous forever. He doesn't just remember the promises, he believes them, he loves them, he adores them, and he speaks them as truth in his life. And then he closes this section with a prayer Give me understanding that I may live. Once again, this prayer finds its basis in the Bible itself. He proclaims true things about the Bible that fuels his request to know it more. And I said this question last week, but we'll say it again. Do you pray more about your life or that you might know the scriptures more? At least this man prays that way. So, so far in this sermon, we've seen that Bible-saturated people disregard enemies by God's word, fight sin through God's word, are amazed by God's word, and we move to our last point. Bible-saturated people pray using God's word. Jump down with me to verse 145. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of night, that I may meditate on your promise. Verse 149. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far for the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. But great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust, because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. While you might think this is an obvious observation. We have clearly moved from petition to lament now in verse 145, and I think we move back to petition in verse 153. And between these two sections, like we've seen before, there are points of connection. In verse 149, 154, and 159, we see requests for life. Verse 149, 154, and 159. Then, both verse 149 and 159 base these cries for help on God's steadfast covenant, love. Both section ends with a proclamation of God's truthfulness and the truthfulness of God's word. In verse 151, he says, "But you are near and your commandments are true." And in verse 160, the sum of your word is truth." In verse 148, we meditate on God's promises, while in verse 154, we pray god's promises and lastly we have a prayer for rescue in verse 146 153 and 154 146 153 154 so now moving to verses 145 through 148 we have a prayer throughout the night before the mention of night however we have several laments i cry answer me i call to you save me and then we have two mentions of prayers in the middle of the night the watches of night began around 10 o'clock and dawn is right at sunrise. So right at sunset and right before sunrise, this man is praying and, and deeply in prayer. And we have circumstances and trials in our own lives that keep us up at night. But instead of tossing and turning, instead of numbing ourselves through a TV show, instead of turning to pop psychology this man turns to the Bible. He's meditating on God's word throughout the night. And he's meditating on God's promises throughout the night. He is fueling hope for God's words. That's what he's doing. And that's what we are called to do as well. Do you value the Bible the way this author does? Because the solution to comfort and affliction is meditation on the scriptures. Verse 149 through 152 now, focus on trusting God's character. The reason I say character is because of verse 149. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. So in this verse, we have two requests, two attributes of God, and one source, God himself. The requests are, hear my voice, O Lord, and give me life, O Lord. In short, this is a prayer for deliverance from his enemies, like we've seen before. But he bases his prayers on attributes of God. The attributes are steadfast love and justice. And we think these are opposite things, but this man puts them in the same verse. In other words, the covenant love is upon the one who loves God in his word, while justice is on the wicked. And this man centers his prayers on none other than the attributes of God that he learned from the Bible. So, the reason he meditates on the Bible so much is because through the scriptures we see who God is and what he tries to accomplish, namely the redemption of his people. And so, he learns who God is and, based on those attributes, prays to God. Moses does the same thing in Exodus 32 when the Israelites worship the false idol, how does Moses pray? If you wipe us out right now, God, you won't get any glory. And he knows that God is jealous for his glory. And in the same way, we are to pray in a way that honors God and his attributes. So how are we to know this other than knowing and reading the Bible? There is one source And the center of this man's prayer is the one source of God himself. Pray according to who God is, his attributes, and for his eternal glory, namely the fame of his name. And then we see in verse 150 that the wicked are far from God's word, but just as far as they are, God is near to him. And that is our comfort, that we can pray knowing that God is near. Verse 153 through 156, then, focus on a prayer for life. He cries, Give me life twice in this section in verse 154 and 159, but his prayers get more intense. Look on my affliction, deliver me, plead my cause, redeem me. And once again, the basis for these commands is on the character of God in verse 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. The basis of these requests comes directly from who God is and his character. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I think Jesus would have been accurate to say, read about who God is. That's how we learn to pray. We learn to pray by learning the character of God from the self-revelation of God, the scriptures. This unit closes then in verse 157 through 160 with a focus on trusting God's eternal word. So we trust God's character We pray for life and then trust God's eternal word. And this unit visits themes that we have seen before. Many adversaries, a focus on the Bible, loving the Bible, request for life. We've seen all those, but I want to focus on 160 to close our time. Here's what he says in verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Remember last week, we saw the center of a structure revealed God's word is eternal. And I said that was the main point. I think he's revisiting this theme and saying God's word is eternally fixed and eternally true. And in our affliction, we can reiterate that if God is powerful enough to create the universe with his spoken word, so his spoken word is powerful enough as comfort in our affliction and as savior in our trials. I'll say that again. If God is powerful enough to create the universe with his spoken word, so his spoken word is powerful enough as comfort and as salvation in our trials. So as we close, we saw that Bible-saturated people disregard enemies by God's word, fight sin through God's word, are amazed by God's word and pray using God's word. And you may have felt a little bit that these points are arbitrary because the themes are so persistent. And I might agree with you a little bit. But the reason for this is clear. The author, as we're reading this, wants us to repeat these truths over and over and over again. Like before, we can get lost in the weeds, but Zenger's comments are helpful here. However, its theme is not the nature nor the content of the Torah, or the first five books of Moses. It does not quote any of the many commandments of the Torah of Moses, and it proposes no meth- ethical model, certainty, no legal... cut co- I forgot how to pronounce that word. No legal commandments. In other words, he's not m- meditating specifically on passages of the Old Testament. What he's doing is speaking of an I relationship to Torah. It is the form of a prayer. This reveals to us that this psalm functions as a prayer for our own lives. He's not quoting passages of Deuteronomy or Exodus or anything like that. He is saying, I love this portion of the scriptures. So when you read this psalm, when you hear me preach this psalm, I want you to pray, Lord, make me like that. That's who I want to be. So pray this week that despite the hostile life, God would make you a lover and a laborer of Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, this word is powerful, this word is true, and it exalts Christ because only in Jesus Christ do we find salvation and forgiveness of our sin. So, Lord, help us in our affliction. Help us to find comfort in the Bible and help us to love Scripture as much as this man does. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Elder Bo is going to come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Christian brother i wish my kids would have had a pastor like you uh, church if you're if you're here with us this morning and if you are a believer we ask you to partake of communion with us if you are not a believer we ask you just kind of hang tight at, during this, this